This is episode number 187, How to Overcome Bad Habits and Cravings Using the Power of the Mind with Dr. Judd Brewer. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spending the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. If we can get curious about what things like fear feel like in our body, we can realize that they're just physical sensations and they're not something to be avoided at all costs. We've just kind of set ourselves up that way to say, oh, that's unpleasant, don't wanna go there. But in fact, if we get curious and say, well, how unpleasant is it? Then we can actually learn, oh, it's not that bad. I'm stoked you guys are here and are part of this awesome community. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and share the show with a screenshot on social media with your friends if you're enjoying it. And today's episode I'm really excited about. It's with Dr. Judd Brewer, and I've been a huge fan of his work for quite some time. And if you want more, go to drjudd.com. He's been on a number of really big podcasts, and he's written a book called The Craving Mind. Our most primitive cravings and habits come down to three words, trigger, behavior, reward. But our brains can trick us into creating bad habits and things like being addicted to technology, being addicted to thinking, even being addicted to love or being addicted to unhealthy food and beverages are things that happen to all of us. To break the cycle, Dr. Judd Brewer believes that curiosity is our ultimate superpower. He has both an MD and PhD and is the Director of Research and Innovation at the Mindfulness Center. He is also an Associate Professor in Psychiatry at the School of Medicine at Brown University, as well as a research affiliate at MIT. He is the founder of the digital therapeutics platform Mind Sciences and author of the book, The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked and How We Can Break Bad Habits. It was one of my favorite books of 2019. And guess what, guys? Dr. Judd is also a fellow mountain biker, and he talks about mountain biking in his book. As an addiction psychiatrist and internationally known expert in mindfulness training for treating addictions, Dr. Judd has developed and tested mindfulness programs for habit change, including both in-person and app-based treatments for smoking, emotional eating, and anxiety. And you can check those out at drjudd.com. I've also linked his TED Talk in the show notes. It's about breaking bad habits, and it has over 14 million views. Some topics we discussed in the podcast is why it's so hard to break bad habits, if willpower even exists, reward-based learning and what that is, how to overcome procrastination using curiosity as your superpower, is there such a thing as an addictive personality, the difference between happiness and excitement, and letting go versus muscling your way through things. Do any of these ring a bell? If you like topics like this, make sure you subscribe to my free weekly newsletter at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter, where I let you know of the new podcasts that came out for the week and also any articles I've written or things I've come across that I think you'll find valuable. I also have a free Facebook group called the Plant Power Tribe with Sonia Looney on Facebook and also plantpowertribe.com, where if you're interested in adding in more plant-based foods so that you can be healthier and perform better, there's a lot of information and community available to you. That's it for announcements. Let's get into today's episode with Dr. Judd Brewer. Welcome, Dr. Judd. Thanks for having me. 
I'm so excited to have you on the show. I love your book, The Craving Mind, but I've been following your work for a really long time and it's such an honor to get to talk to you. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, so I think that everybody here has issues with breaking bad habits, including myself, or trying to make new good habits. And for me, I actually would say that a consistent meditation practice is a good habit that I have difficulty with that I'm very like, I don't do it every day, but I do it inconsistently. So why is it so hard for us to make a good habit or break a bad habit? I think it's helpful to start with kind of just a very basic understanding of how our minds work and how habits form. Uh, and it's not that complicated. So maybe we could start there. How's that sound? Sounds good to me. So on a very basic level, we form habits in a three-step process. You know, there's a trigger, a behavior, and a reward or a result of that behavior. And that goes all the way back to survival. You know, that's how we remember where food is. That's how we avoid danger. So that process is at play with, I don't know, 90% of the things that we learn. Like almost all of our um, reward-based learning is based on this. So whether it's tying our shoes, you know, we... we learn to tie our shoe, you know, we see our shoe untied, that's the trigger, then we tie our shoe, that's the behavior, and then we don't trip on over ourselves, you know, that's kind of the result or the reward. So you can see how habits get formed from everything, from learning how to put on our clothes, tie our shoes, walk, cook food, all of these things, right? Very, very helpful. Yet, there are many ways that we kind of get locked into bad habits, and those often start with things that might have been rewarding in the past but aren't that rewarding for us now. An example of that would be, let's say, eating cake. Let's say that somebody has the bad habit of eating too much cake or eating cake when they're not hungry or something like that. Well, you can think about this. We lay down, we, we get this you know, reward and we lay down these habit loops since we were kids. Every time we go to a birthday party, we lay down this habit around, oh, you know, cake is good because I'm, you know, there's all this reward by being surrounded by friends and by having a party and getting presents and all this stuff. And every time we have a birthday party or go to a birthday party, that, that gets laid down even more. It's like, oh, yeah, eating cake is good. Eating cake is good. Eating cake is good. And then when we're in our middle age <laughs> and eating cake isn't such a good idea, you know, we don't have the metabolism of a five-year-old. <laughs> we sit there and we look at the cake and we're like, why is it so hard not to eat cake? <laughs> but it's because it's been laid down as this really rewarding thing for, you know, decades and it's not going to magically change just because we don't want to eat cake anymore, which is interesting because most of the <laughs> so funny how many of our you know habit strategies are set around things like willpower and just you know just don't eat the cake <laughs> like it's a light switch that we could just flip and turn it off. That's not how our brains work. Yet I guess it's a good way to get people to join your diet program or something. Yeah. And I've talked about Kelly McGonigal's work on willpower on the show a little bit. And just like how guilt actually weakens our willpower. Can, yeah. how, does, how does willpower work in the brain for people who aren't familiar with that? You want to know the truth? Yep. Okay. Well, <laughs> I asked the very same question myself. You know, as a, as a neuroscientist, I really wanted to get down to the bottom of this. And at, um, at Brown, we have one of the leading cognitive neuroscientists, um, you know, in the world. Um, and so I asked him and I said, you know, how does how does willpower fit with all of this? Because I just couldn't find it in the literature. 
And he said, oh, yeah, we don't really write about it. That doesn't really fit into the cognitive models of how the brain works. And, I was, and he said, you know, actually, I'm writing a book about this. And, you know, it goes all the way back to the early 1900s with, you know, cognitive depletion and things like that. It turns out that there is no clear evidence, one, that we become cognitively depleted. There was a graduate student of this guy, Thorndike, Ed Thorndike, who was one of the first people to look at animal behavior. He had a, a Japanese woman who was a graduate student of his, which is pretty amazing early in the 1900s, you know, yeah. uh, women, <laughs> you know, Japanese women in U.S. graduate programs, which is great to, you know, great that the legacy goes back that far. But she basically did her PhD thesis where she would just do four by four math problems where it's like, you know, multiply four digit number by a four digit number in her head. And she would check to see how long she could do it. So she basically spent 10, 12 hours a day doing this just to see if she'd get depleted. She did this for like something like three or four months and figured out that, you know, she could always do another math problem. She might get tired. She might get bored. All these other things might come into play. But she could always do another math problem. So this, you know, this whole thing around, you know, willpower and willpower depletion is really coming to question in modern day. So how it works in the brain, the best we know is that there, you know, there's this prefrontal cortex, the youngest part of our brain from an evolutionary perspective, that is involved in things like uh, working memory and and theoretically in cognitive, con well, cognitive control. And I say, and theoretically with willpower, if that is a thing. So that part of the brain is the weakest from uh, an evolutionary perspective. The first that goes offline, if willpower is even a thing. So I don't mean to, to complicate things, but there's clear evidence for how we learn and how we change behavior based on things like rewards. And that's pretty clear. You know, that's that's been, you know, Eric Kendall got the Nobel Prize showing that that's evolutionarily conservative all the way back to the sea slug. But there is no clear evidence actually for willpower. It's a nice heuristic. And I think we all like to think, you know, that if we just do it, we'll just do it. But if you look at it, a lot of those behavior changes happen because there's been something that's been rewarding. So, for example, and these are some of the more recent research has shown you know, where, where people are finding that people that seemingly have good willpower actually have set up the habits where they're not distracted <laughs> by, <laughs> by their temptations and things like that. Yeah. And like habituation to these rewards, like say we're trying to change a habit and we are looking at the rewards and that's what's reinforcing for better or for worse what we're doing. But there's a habituation process that happens. So how do you kind of overcome that if you're trying to keep going with the thing? So habituation is a very real thing. You know, that's how our brain gets used to anything. And it actually helps our brain lay down habits so that it can go and learn other things, right? So habituation in general is a good thing. If we had to relearn walking, tying our shoes, talking, eating food, everything, you know, every day, you know, we'd be exhausted by breakfast, right? So the, the habituation piece is helpful for learning and also helps us, helps our brain adapt when there's, you know, there's a very, you know, strong amount of something. But it also, you know, so let, I'm trying to think of a good example of a habituation. Let's say 
I don't know, a habit that I see a lot is when people are procrastinating, you know, in, in, in modern day procrastination is huge because we have this thing called the internet and we have these, <laughs> these weapons of mass distraction in our pockets where we, you know, we, we can basically distract ourselves any moment of the day. So let's say that we're bored. That's the trigger. The behavior is that we go on the, you know, go on Instagram or, or check, look at YouTube, cute pictures of puppies or whatever. And then that reward is we get that momentary distraction from whatever we were trying to distract ourselves from, feel a little bit better. You know, if cute pictures of puppies always worked, that would suggest that there's no habituation, yet we become habituated. And so we have to look at, you know, our brain says, okay, you know, show me puppies and kittens. Now show me puppies, kittens and babies and whatever, you know, like we have to just keep looking for more. That's how we become habituated to, you know, so many different types of, of rewards. So that habituation process is kind of there as a learning process, yet that's also how things like addictions form, right? And so we become addicted to social media because we check our Twitter feed one more time for that dopamine hit, or we become addicted to alcohol because we become tolerant to that first drink and then the second drink and then the third drink and, you know, it takes more and more to get that buzz. You know, all all drugs of abuse have this have this habituation process at play. So, how can we actually overcome this? Is that was that, I'm sorry. I think that was your, was that your question. Mm-hmm. We can actually overcome it by finding rewards that are one intrinsically rewarding, as in we don't have to go outside of ourselves to get those rewards. And two, that are also they have to be more rewarding than the other behavior. So let's say that I want to stop the behavior of procrastination or pick a pick a habit. Is procrastination a good one or what would yeah, you like to do? I think I think most of us can relate with that. <laughs> okay. So so if we're trying to overcome a bad habit of procrastination, the typical suggestion for habit change is, you know, like substitute do a substitute behavior. So do something else so that you're not procrastinating. It's, <laughs> that procrastination is a tough one to find a substitute behavior for because it is, you know, it's it's kind of keeping us from doing the thing that we're supposed to be doing in the first place. So procrastination is a kind of a substitution in the first in the first place. So if we look for some type of a substitution behavior, then we have to still look for something else that still is uh, falls on generally falls under the the rubric of the habituation process. So we have to find something that is not outside of ourselves, you know, like looking at cute pictures of puppies is, is looking outside of ourselves. Smoking a cigarette is something outside of ourselves. Eating cake is something outside of ourselves. We have to find something that is more rewarding, but is also always available inside of ourselves so that it's not, it doesn't become habituated. So for example, with procrastination, we use mindfulness training or awareness, help train people in awareness, and in particular, curiosity, so they can actually get curious about what the procrastination feels like in their body. And also so they can actually see how reward-based learning works in their brain. So reward-based learning is based on rewards. It's not based on the behavior itself. So if typically, you know, if it were just, you know, think your way out of a behavior, we would just say stop procrastinating and we would stop doing it. But that's not how our brain works. So we have to find something that is more rewarding than procrastination. And awareness can help in two ways. One, it helps us see how unrewarding procrastination is in itself. So we drop into our direct experience and ask, wow, what am I, you know, what am I getting from this, from procrastinating, and check in with what it feels like. 
Well, most people describe when they're procrastinating, you know, in the moment, you know, when they're distracting themselves, it feels good. But afterwards, they feel guilty. They feel like they're more behind. All these other results come from it that actually don't feel that good in themselves. So if we if people can pay attention to what the result of that behavior is, they actually see the procrastination isn't that rewarding on whole, you know, if you bring all the elements together. So that helps their brain see, oh yeah, this isn't actually that rewarding, but at the same time, it opens up the space for something that is more rewarding. And this is where curiosity comes in. So, you know, if we have an urge to look at cute pictures of puppies on Instagram, how does that feel compared to being curious? Which one feels better? Well, looking I mean, at the puppies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, so if you zoom in on that urge, like, oh, I don't want to do this thing that I have to do. That's the urge that moves us toward the procrastination, right? Yeah. That craving itself generally doesn't feel no, very good. And knowing, like. and knowing that you're doing something on purpose, being aware that you're doing that on purpose to procrastinate doesn't feel good. Doesn't but feel but good whenever either. you open the app and you look at the puppies, then you're, you feel better. <laughs> right. And how long does that last? Not very long. Yeah. So we get this, this brief hit of puppies. Cool. And then our brain's like, okay, puppies, I get it. Shouldn't yeah. you be doing something? Yeah. <laughs> Aren't you supposed to be doing this or that? Right. And so on whole, that little hit of dopamine that we get from looking at the cute pictures of puppies and like, oh, you know, puppies isn't actually that rewarding when we pay attention to it. But when we get curious right in that moment and get curious about, oh, what does this feel like in my body? Um, oh, it feels like tightness or it feels like restlessness or it feels like this or this or this. The curiosity itself can help flip the valence from that unpleasant urge or the unpleasant guilt or the whatever to, oh, this is a physical sensation in my body. And in that moment, that curiosity can actually feel better than all the guilt and all the other stuff. Now, maybe I can use a different concrete example because it might seem strange that curiosity could actually help us flip that valence and, and overcome bad habits. So I'll give two really brief examples from some of the clinical studies that we've done in my lab. One is with smoking. So we have a, an app called uh, Craving to Quit where we help people quit smoking. We found that we can actually map onto the brain how this changes people's brains. But basically... The way uh, what we have people do is we have them pay attention as they smoke and they realize, oh, you know, smoking doesn't actually taste very good. And so it drops that reward value of the cigarette. And at the same time, they can replace that with curiosity and they can get curious about what those physical sensations of craving feel like. And they can learn to write out those cravings. And we've had, you know, we've uh, in one study, we had five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment with mindfulness training. So it seems to work pretty well. It even seems to work when people bring curiosity to anxiety. So there are these habit loops around, around anxiety. Uh, pictures of puppies are, are one way that people deal with anxiety, right? We've had people learn to substitute curiosity for feelings of panic and anxiety for themselves. And they actually find that they can get in the habit of being curious about those sensations and not feed their old habit loops of anxiety simply by being curious. And we just finished a randomized controlled trial where we actually got a 63% reduction in clinically validated uh, anxiety scores in, um, you know, in people with generalized anxiety disorder. So it's not just like a one-off thing. We can actually see this at a population level. Does that make sense? It does. I actually wanted to ask you specifically about anxiety and the curiosity around that, because a lot of times people feel anxious when they don't have control over something. 
Because I think for some people, being curious about what it feels like, like it might be really hard to pinpoint specifically or articulate what that feels like. So can we take anxiety as an example and start asking questions so someone can like learn to ask themselves the right questions about anxiety? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And we even developed the whole you know app for this called uh, Unwinding Anxiety. But the idea is that you start by being able to map out your habit loops around anxiety. So let's say I like your example of uncertainty. So there's something that's uncertain and our brains are actually set up to try to predict the future, right? Mm -hmm. And so the behavior is to try to figure out what the best plan is, you know, so we start planning. But that planning can easily flip into worrying, like, oh no, what if this happens? Oh no, what if this happens? And then our brains just totally spiral out of control where that worry actually feeds the anxiety, which then feeds more worry and then it just starts you know, looping, okay? So the first step there is for somebody to be able to map out, okay, do I have any uh, habit loops around anxiety or around worry, you know? And seeing the difference between planning something and planning it 17 times and worrying about it, right? Where they can see, okay, you know, need to plan to get to the airport, that's helpful. Um, planning for the 17th time and worrying about every little contingency is, oh, probably not that helpful. So that's the first step. The second step is to just see, okay, how much, <laughs> where does the, the reward of planning actually plateau? Is it at the second time? Is it at the third time? You know, probably setting a plan and then double checking it, probably a good idea, right? But when it gets to the 18th or the 20th time, you know, we've, we've lost all the value that comes with planning and it's just worrying at that stage. So if we can really pay attention to see what am I getting from the worrying? And then we have, I have my patients and I have the folks in our own running anxiety program simply ask that question, what do I get from this? Where they can see the clear cause and effect relationship between that worrying and the result of that worrying, right? So they can, their brain can see, oh, it's not that rewarding. Mm -hmm. That helps that reward value drop so that their brain can actually find that BVO, that bigger, better offer. So this is where curiosity comes in. Instead of looping and looping and looping and worrying, they can see that habit loop and then get curious. Oh, look, I've planned this 17 times. What does it feel like in my body as my brain tries to you know, plan thinking that it's a good idea? And they can just get really curious about what that worry itself feels like in that moment. And one way that I found that's really helpful for people to be able to kind of bring curiosity to it is to kind of localize where that anxiety is or where the worry is, where they feel it most strongly in their body. And then to ask themselves the simple question, do I feel it more on my right side or on my left side? Now, the reason I do that is it doesn't matter what side it's on, but it helps them get curious like, oh, is it more on my right side or is it more on my left side? And it brings that interest, curiosity into their direct experience, which is what mindfulness is all about. It's about helping them be with their direct experience and not get caught up in it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I, I also think it takes a lot of courage for somebody to be willing to look for an uncomfortable feeling in their body because some people avoid that at all costs. Yes, absolutely. Uh, what was that? There's like a James Joyce novel that begins like Mr. 
Duffy lived a short distance from his body, you know, something like that. Like where we're, we're these disembodied heads walking around <laughs> trying to avoid all of the unpleasant feelings in our bodies. Right. So I think, you know, that that's that's something that's been around for a long, 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 long time. You know, there, actually, there's this great quote about curiosity. It says it's something like curiosity will conquer fear even more than bravery will. I think that was a woman, Dorothy Parker, who said that, if I've got that right. Curiosity will conquer fear even more than bravery will. And the idea there is, if we can get curious about what things like fear feel like in our body, we can realize that they're just physical sensations and they're not something to be avoided at all costs. We've just kind of set ourselves up that way to say, oh, that's unpleasant, don't want to go there. But in fact, if we get curious and say, well, how unpleasant is it? Then we can actually learn, oh, it's not that bad. I remember I had a patient who came into my office. He was trying to quit smoking. And he, <laughs> he came in and he said, Doc, I feel like if I don't smoke a cigarette, my head will explode. <laughs> you know? So that's how strong some of these unpleasant feelings can be, whether it's a craving or whether it's anxiety or whatever. And what we did was we just, I just sat him down and I said, okay, well, what does head exploding feel like? And we, he described, he said, oh, it's, it's tightness here, it's heat there, it's restlessness there. And, you know, you could see his eyes get bigger and bigger and bigger as he mapped this out because he realized, oh, these are just physical sensations. You know, head exploding is just this big concept that I was afraid of. But when I break it down into its component elements, it's it's not actually that bad. You know, it's kind of like uh, taking a thunderstorm and saying, oh, no, thunderstorm, but saying, OK, what's it made of? You know, it's rain, it's wind, it's thunder, it's lightning, it's whatever. And as we start to see all of its elements, we realize, oh, this is what a thunderstorm is made of. And it's not nearly as big and bad and scary once we know what it's made of. And the same is true uh, with our own bodies. If we realize, oh, whatever this thing is that's really unpleasant, can I actually just get curious about it for a moment? We realize, oh, oh it's not as bad as I thought. Yeah, I loved uh, learning about this. And in your book, you wrote specifically about the smoking cessation program and how you use mindfulness-based stress reduction against or you know, compared it to the American Lung Association's cognitive behavioral therapy methods. And We've talked about CBT a lot on the podcast and like reframing and, and replacing, you know, something negative with something positive. So why is it that curiosity and mindfulness work better than CBT? Yeah, it's a great question. So I have not directly compared mindfulness training to CBT. So I can't say for certain, as you just pointed out. The American Lung Association's cognitive therapy is a cognitive-based therapy. It's not formal CBT for, okay. you know, as Aaron Beck would teach it, mm -hmm. but it's a, it's a form of a cognitive therapy. Mm -hmm. So there are a couple of things. So one, CBT can be helpful for folks that are able to access the cognitive control parts of their brain. But that, as I mentioned earlier, that part of the brain is reliant on the prefrontal cortex, which is the first part of our brain that goes offline when we're stressed. So when we, you know, when we're stressed or when we have a really strong craving or when we're anxious, those are times when it's really difficult to actually access our cognitive control parts of our brain to do something, you know, where we would replace or we would reframe or we would do whatever. So in moments like that, um, it's helpful to be able to tap into the older parts of our brains, the older and the stronger parts of our brains. 
And that's where curiosity comes in because it can help us actually tap into that reward-based learning process itself. So the curiosity helps us not try to kind of bring in cognitive thinking parts of the brain, but it actually helps us tap into our direct experience, which is what drives reward-based learning in the first place. Yeah, and it seems like in some cases using cognitive therapy could also set you into another habit loop that you had habitualized at some other point that might not be helpful. (laughs) True. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The good news about curiosity is it doesn't become habituated um, because it's intrinsic, you know, and it's, you know, so in that, in that way, it's always available. So besides that old saying about curiosity killed the cat, which is actually, if you go back and look at it, it's not, it was this thing that morphed out of a, a Shakespeare play that he was quoting somebody else. It was actually <laughs> care. So um, curiosity killed the cat is actually just more of a meme than anything else. So, you know, if we put that phrase aside, curiosity is actually really, really helpful for us. It helps us learn. And so it's hard to imagine, you know, being being too curious. <laughs> So in your book, you have a couple different chapters about addiction, like addicted to technology or addicted to thinking. And I started thinking about addiction and addictive personalities. And you hear people say, oh, I have a really addictive personality. Does that actually exist? Or is that something? Have you looked at people's brains in a scanner of people who claim to be have an addictive personality? We haven't done that ourselves, but there are certainly genetic predispositions and polymorphisms that people have in certain genes that make them more susceptible to addictions than other people. And they're you know, probably some of the most well-documented addiction you know, genotyping is around alcohol. There are a bunch of different types of genotypes where some people... You know, they drink alcohol and they're like, eh. Other people, they drink alcohol and they're like, whoa, this is awesome. <laughs> more. <I want> more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. And I think a lot of people that listen to this show, a lot of people have reached out saying, oh, like I struggle with burnout and things like that. And addicted to doing and addicted to success. And also, like, we talked about habituation. Like, I think that a lot of times we'll achieve, we'll achieve something, whether it be like a race result or like something at work or... And then it just becomes like like looking at the picture of the puppies. You look at it, you're like, eh, like whatever, and then you need more. So how can we apply this addiction to like doing or success? Oh, what a great question. Mm. <laughs> this, is, this is such a great question. So if you look at success from a reward-based learning standpoint, we can map it out, right? And so let's say, let's just use a race as an example. Hypothetical illustration. I'm sure this doesn't apply to you or anybody listening. So hypothetical <laughs> illustration. Let's say that you know we win a race, you know, mountain bike race, road race, whatever. If we're or a competitor, and that race can also apply at work. You know, so the race is to get the promotion, to get uh, a bunch of followers on Twitter, whatever. You know, there mm-hmm. there are tons of different ways that we set up competitions in life. So the trigger could be thinking about the last race that we won, the behavior is to train more and think about, okay, I want to win another race. And then the results is that we, you know, we really push ourselves to try to, to win at all costs sometimes. Mm-hmm. Now that's based on an outcome. We're going for the reward so that we can then have that good feeling of getting the trophy or getting congratulated or getting a bunch of likes on you know, Instagram or Twitter or whatever. So 
that's one way that that we can live our life. Another way is to focus on the process itself, you know, and there's the, you know, there are all these sayings around enjoy the journey, all this stuff. Well, they're actually true. <laughs> because if we focus on, let's say, racing, whether and that this could be at work as well, if the trigger is that we, you know, notice the urge to try to outcompete somebody, and we notice the behavior that we're getting. So we're getting burnt out or we're becoming known as that jerk at work or whatever. And we realize that's not actually that rewarding. We can then step back and ask ourselves, well, what's it feel like if I just enjoy the ride? If I just enjoy the process of training? If I just enjoy the process of racing? You know, I remember I ran the Boston Marathon, you know, years and years ago. And people were like, what are you going for? What are you going for? And I was like, I just want to have fun, <laughs> you know? And I remember running the race and just like, you know, there are all these cute kids on the sidelines giving, you know, they give these orange slices. I was like, okay, you know, because the kids are so excited when you take their orange slice, you know? So I, was, so, so I was in there to like, you know, get my PR or whatever. It wouldn't have been nearly as fun as like, okay, one more orange slice or, you know, like high five in people. Um, I remember the it was around mile, I don't know what mile it is that you pass Wellesley. And, you know, so I was like high-fiving all the, the women at Wellesley, just having a great time. I ended up running the best, you know, I ran like a 255 or something, which oh, is wow. like the best marathon that I've ever run, you know? And, and I was like, and I, it was so fun. You know, I just had a great time, but I wasn't worried about like my time. Oh, no, which is great because at the beginning, you know, I was started out around, you know, like the 3000s. And it literally took over like five minutes before I even crossed the starting line for all the people in front of me to kind of clear out. And it took me literally miles before I could take a full stride. Ugh. Now, every step. So imagine running the first three miles of your marathon, trying to get a PR, thinking I can't take a full stride. That would suck. Yeah. <laughs> that would absolutely suck. But I was just like, okay, I'm running the Boston Marathon. This is fun. Let's go. You know, let's see what happens. And it was fine. You know, I ran a great time and I had a great time doing it. So if you think of that, boy, I haven't thought about that in a long time. But, you know, that's an example of just enjoying the ride or enjoying the run. If I was worried about my PR, it would have sucked. But in fact, I just stepped back and said, well, let's just let's enjoy the ride and see what happens. And, you know, ended up doing fine. And so that's the way I've approached a lot of things since then. You know, if it's a race, just enjoy the race. You know, if there's something to do at work that needs to get done, instead of trying to do better than somebody else, which actually doesn't feel that good, you know, like, how can I bring some team effort in? Because that feels great to work with other people to do something. And then I don't get burned out because I'm not there trying to get some result. And then getting habituated to the results, so I have to do more and more and more and more. It's just like, well, every day I go and I enjoy what I'm doing. Now, somebody might ask, well, what if I don't like my job? Well, you know, if you don't like your job, look to see what aspects of your job you do like if you can't change your job or look for a different job. It doesn't mean, you know, sometimes we feel like we're locked into things, but we can actually, you know, if we are circumstantially locked into something, we can actually find all sorts of different ways where we can enjoy the ride, where we can not goof off, but actually have fun while we're doing the work. 
Yeah. And something else that I think about a lot is relevance and validation, because like I definitely set my goals based on the process instead of just the outcome, because a lot of times you can't control the outcome because it's based on what other people are doing. But whenever other people in a public forum can see, you know, oh, so-and-so got this result or everybody's watching or you feel like we selfishly think everybody's watching and everybody cares about us. And really only we really truly care about it. But it can be really hard whenever you're so focused on staying relevant or you you need the validation to feel good about yourself and being able to change. This is something I've worked really hard on for a long time and I feel good about where I'm at. But I've heard in my community a lot how it's really hard to switch from really truly enjoying the process and and like in your race, your, your Boston Marathon, just being okay with not hammering away the first three miles to not worrying about what that result is or not like making excuses at the end. Because if you didn't get, I'm not saying you, but if somebody didn't get the result that they wanted, mm-hmm. it's easy to, easy to try and save face by saying, well, this happened or if I had done this, this. So like, how do you get out? Because that, that's another habit loop. Yeah, it is. It is. So I'm glad you point that out, right? You just mapped out that habit loop. So let's say the trigger is we don't win or we don't run the PR or we don't get the result that we wanted. And then the behavior is making excuses. We can actually look at the result of that if we're willing to be honest (laughs) and truly look at it and ask, well, what's it like when I complain? What's it like when I make excuses? Well, certainly if we do that in a public form, we're going to get feedback where people are going to be like, man, you you know, sound like a sore loser. Um, (laughs) So that's not actually that rewarding when we really pay attention to it. When that's not rewarding, that opens up that space for the bigger, better offer. And it gives us the opportunity to say, well, you know, I used to love competing. I used to love training. Why don't I love this anymore? And we can start to see what are the habit loops that we've developed over the years that might actually be taking the joy out of the process. Are we really outcome oriented? And if we realize that and we see that it's not actually that rewarding, can we then get curious and say, well, let me just play with the process itself. And we can start to actually you know, open to and be curious about, let me try this a different way. And then focus, it sounds like you're doing this now, just focus on the process. And the good news is, the process feels so much better. And it's not like you become habituated to a process because the process is not an outcome. Yeah. And I think that some of the things that we're most proud of, like you would think that it would say, oh, I'm proud of like this reward or this, this result or this achievement. But if I think back even in my career and think of the things that I'm most proud of, it's not necessarily where I won or where I was the best at something. It's where it brought the best out of me. And the best out of you might not be being number one, but being able to rise up and be outside yourself, I think is is such a powerful thing. And to be able to recognize that and look back at that and say, oh, this is what really matters. And like, if I really care about like wanting to make the most of the things that I'm doing, knowing what makes you feel good. And like you talked about contraction and expansion in your body, like sometimes whenever you, you get the thing, the shiny thing, it doesn't actually feel good. Yeah. I'll give you a very concrete example of this. Recently, I was uh, leading a a meditation retreat for the U.S. women's national team for uh, water polo. And, you know, they're preparing for Tokyo and their coach wanted them to do a seven day silent meditation retreat. And at the end of that retreat, 
they were talking about, you know, they had just come off of, they'd won the world championships and they just won the Pan Am games. And they talked about the journey and how the most important aspect of things to them was the teamwork and the camaraderie. And, oh yeah, we won Pan Am and we won, you know, they're back-to-back gold medalists in the Olympics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's the teamwork. That was the piece that they kept coming back to you know, as we ended silence and, and finished this retreat, and they were kind of reflecting on just the joy of teamwork as compared to, you know, competing with each other in a cutthroat way. So, so I think that really highlights what you're talking about. So I'm going to change gears here a little bit and talk about focus. Okay. Like, I'm notorious for having multiple browsers open on my, you know, my web browser. And like, I try and keep my phone away. But it's like, it's hard to stay focused on one task. And I do notice that with meditation or just being able to like, be aware before you even change your task, because a lot of times changing the task is so on autopilot that you you feel like you're not even in control. But why is it so hard for us to focus? And why has it gotten so much worse? <laughs> Another great question. We could talk about this for hours. So I'll just <laughs> keep it to some of the main points. One is that we've never had a society where we are so we have so many things that try to distract us anymore. You know, it's kind of like we have a slot machine in our pocket if we have our phones set to beep and bing every time there's a, you know, a tweet or an email or a text or whatever. So that sets up what's called intermittent reinforcement, which is the most, the strongest type of reinforcement learning known in all of science. And it basically means that if something happens in an unexpected manner, our brain says, huh, what was that? What was that? And it goes, you know, and it basically pays attention to that. So a simple way to describe this is uh, slot machines, right? If the slot machine paid out at a regular interval, everybody would know when to stop. But the casino set them up with a specific formula based on intermittent reinforcement to pay out just enough that uh, you'll keep coming back for more, right? And so, you know, that's where the house always wins comes from. So you don't know when you're going to win, but you win enough that you lose all your money. <laughs> so, you know, literally, literally. So that's the intermittent reinforcement piece. And we never know when we're going to get a text if we have our uh, phone set you know, to beep when we get text messages. So phones, email, Twitter, Instagram, you know, all these different, the Facebook, you know, if we have all these things open, it's like an, it's like an intermittent reinforcement bonanza. You know, you never know which one of these is going to go off. And that just gets our brain going crazy. You know, like, oh, this, oh, this, oh, this, oh, this. So we've been, society is now set up this way where we never had uh, this capability before, uh, thanks to technology. So that kind of taps into a a fundamental learning mechanism. The other piece, and I think this has largely been debunked now, but just in case folks are still believing it, this whole myth around multitasking. (laughs) So people think that they can be more productive multitasking, but there's been a ton of science showing that there are these huge costs for set shifting where you have to basically, you know, we've talked about working memory earlier. So you have to, if you're doing a task, you have to hold it in your working memory and you have to focus on it. And then if you switch to a different task, you have to kind of offload that in your brain, upload the other task in your brain and then do it. And so even if we're trying to be on a phone call and check our email and, you know, check the news at the same time on a website, 
if we think we're multitasking, it's actually just exhausting our brain because it can't possibly keep track of any of that stuff. And at the same time, how much are we actually paying attention to any of those things? How well are we doing any of those things? So this comes into the, the place where we can find a solution. We can just ask ourselves the next time we're multitasking, you know, how did that go? How did that feel? You know, and for me, multitasking feels terrible. Like I can't even get myself to do it anymore because it feels awful. Because unitasking, like doing one thing at a time, feels so much better. So if I'm on a phone call and just really listening on the phone call, it just feels so much better because I'm so much more connected with that person than when I'm trying to do three things at once. Now, for folks on boring conference calls, I don't know what to say because (laughs) (laughs) that's where I think where a lot of the temptation to multitask comes in, you know, where we're, we're supposed to be listening on a conference call, but we're not really, you know, somebody else is yapping away. And so we're going to check our email instead. You know, we can start with obvious places where, you know, if like we're trying to do something, we can focus on that task, turn all of our beeps and bangs off and just see what it feels like to focus on that task for 30 minutes. It just feels so good to be focused on one thing. And then we can reflect on it afterwards and help our brain see, oh, wow, that was pretty good, which will then train us to turn all those, you know, the device sounds off when we're really trying to focus on something. Does that make sense? Yeah. And um, I'm I'm sure you've heard of all this stuff, but in positive psychology, I I loved Martin Seligman's work and he had one called Authentic Theory of Happiness. And one of the Mm -hmm. elements of that is concentration and how good it feels whenever you have an experience of pure concentration and how it makes you feel happy. So I've, I've thought about that a lot in terms of curiosity of like, well, when do I feel most satisfied at the end of the day? Like, what did my day actually look like? And it was when I had very concentrated periods of work. This actually leads me to my next question, and it's about happiness versus excitement. And it's really Mm. easy to get the two mixed up or or to even be able to tell the difference between the two. So like, how can you define the difference between the two and how can you get curious about that? (laughs) Great question. We're going to have to set this one up so it's really clear because I think this can be, um, it's subtle and I don't want to confuse folks. So let's start with some obvious things. And you brought it up a little bit earlier when we talked about contraction versus expansion. Mm -hmm. So we can have a feeling of contraction or expansion, which can help us really differentiate things. So for example, you tell me, does fear feel contracting or expanding if you just drop into your experience and think of a time when you were afraid? Contracting. Yeah, which makes sense because evolutionarily, you know, it's good to kind of make ourselves as small of a target as possible if something's about to eat us, right? So we you, we literally close down and make ourselves small. How about joy? Does it feel contracting or expanding? Expanding. Okay, great. So if we kind of calibrate the system around those two things, fear feeling contracting, joy feeling expanding... My labs actually looked at a bunch of different mental states to see if there's kind of a universal language around contraction and expansion. We typically describe it as open and closed, but same thing, right? Fear feels closed, joy feels open. How about, let's get something a little more subtle than fear. Let's use one more obvious example. Uh, Anxiety, does that feel contracting or expanding? Contracting. Okay. How about when you are feeling connected with somebody? Expanding. Okay, good. So you you get it, right? Mm-hmm. You you're seeing these pieces. 
So there's this, I, I read in a book, uh, this, this Burmese meditation teacher, he talked about how people mistake the excitement of the mind for happiness. And that was, that really struck me. And so I really started exploring that myself and looking into this. And so if you had to compare joy to excitement, which one feels more contracting? I would say excitement probably feels more contracting. Yeah, yeah. So that actually, and that's what a lot of people report as well, but it makes a lot of sense because excitement is dopaminergically driven. So there's this restless quality that comes when our brain fires dopamine because dopamine firing is there to get us off our butts to go do something, right? So it says, go eat the food so you don't starve. Go drink the water so you don't, you can quench your thirst. Go start um, 10 projects right now because they are really exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So that same process is at play that is anticipating the future. That's a dopamine-driven thing that is results-based. Get the food, get the water, get the project done, win the race, whatever. Whereas, so you compare that excitement to just the joy. This goes back to the process versus the result. The joy itself in doing something actually feels better because it feels more open than the closed quality that comes with excitement. So often people think that excitement is their highest level of happiness, but it's because they haven't actually looked in the greater reward that comes from joy. And even with things like you described, concentration. Concentration feels better than excitement. Excitement, you know, doesn't last very long. It's restless. It's, you know, with this itch that we feel like we have to scratch. Whereas when you're concentrated on something, you're just concentrated. You're in it. You're in the zone. You're, you're going. Yeah, uh, it was like a year or two ago. I was having a lot of crazy burnout because I get excited. I know you know Brad Stolberg, the excitement junkie. Like, I'm definitely one of those. And I said, like, what am I trying to cultivate in my life? What do I need more of? And it was ease. I needed more ease. And, excite mm -hmm. and, and ease and joy, I think, kind of go hand in hand. But, like, yes. excitement doesn't necessarily... Actually, for me, I would say it does not contribute to a sense of ease because when I feel excited, I feel like, oh, now I need to put all I want to put all this energy forward to do. But doing is not necessarily a relaxed state or like an easeful state. So I think we get stuck in these like these ruts of in unintentional dis-ease because we feel excited about something, but don't mm -hmm. realize at the time because you're so excited that this is actually going to contribute to feelings of contraction or feelings of dis-ease later. So I probably just confuse people, but <laughs> I just I just think about this a lot. Yeah, no, I don't. I think you said it beautifully. And I think so one thing that we should point out is that it doesn't mean that excitement is a bad thing. There was a a meme going around in Silicon Valley around dopamine fasting. <laughs> I don't know if you heard about this. <laughs> I didn't. Leave it to Silicon Valley where they're like, I've got to fast from anything that's going to be dopaminergic. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> okay, good luck. Way to, you know, way to try to, you know, hack your brain this way, you know, because you don't know how it works. But the idea is it's not that dopamine is a bad thing. You know, it's, it's not like we have to 
you know, we get, you, we've overexcited ourselves. So we have to fast from it for a while. And then magically what we're going to be happy. I don't know. We're just going to actually get frustrated because it's really hard to fast from all the things that, that lead, you know, that, that cause a dopamine firing. But the point here is that we can start to see how our brains work and the dopamine firing is there to help us lay down memory. It's there, you know, it's there to help us remember what is rewarding and what's not rewarding. That's really helpful. And if we can start to see the difference between that and in anticipating getting a reward and how unrewarding it is to anticipate getting a reward, we can then find these bigger, better offers such as joy and ease. And so it sounds like you did this through self-discovery where you're like, oh, I need ease. And this is the opposite of excitement. It doesn't mean that you tried to cut yourself off from things that were exciting, but you might have noticed, oh, excitement doesn't really do it that much for me. Can I find things that bring ease? And I'm guessing you did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I know we only have a couple of minutes left, so there's something I also wanted to talk about, and it was your experience with meditation. And I think that this applies like even beyond meditation and the cushion, but like athletes and academics and like people like we're used to doing and muscling our way through things. And mm -hmm. I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I'm having a baby soon. And it just, it just clicked like two days ago that, Oh, wait a second. Like, I'm not going to be able to muscle this. I have to let this happen. So like the difference between muscling it and letting it go. And I know that you really, that really came to light for you when you're meditating, like you were doing all these different retreats. Yes. So I could, <laughs> if any, hopefully people can learn from me falling on my face uh, because I certainly fell on my face <laughs> for about 10 years with meditating because I was thinking, you know, willpower is the way to go. I, you know, made it through college, gotten into medical school, all this stuff. And I thought it was because I was just muscling my way through things. In retrospect, I realized it was because I was really interested and I was really curious about learning and it made it much easier to learn things and, you know, get decent enough grades to get into medical school and all that stuff. But I was approaching meditation in the same way that I thought I had been approaching my, you know, quote unquote success earlier in life. And so I would go on long silent meditation retreats in the middle of winter. So in Massachusetts, where it's pretty cold in the winter and I would sweat through T-shirts, trying to concentrate, trying to force myself to pay attention to my breath. And it took me 10 years to realize that I was doing it all wrong. 10 exhausting years where I'd go and I'd nap every moment that I got. You know, it was really, really hard work. Sorry to interrupt here. How did you not give up? Because 10 years, like, that's a long time. Yeah, thick-headedness, I think. <laughs> And I was, to be fair, I was also seeing some benefits, Okay. you know, like I, I was less stressed and things like that, but you know, it was, it was hard work. And you know, when I set my mind on something, I'd, I'd really try to <laughs> try to do it. So I realized, and I think my teachers probably were like, oh, finally you figured this out. Cause we've been trying to teach this to you forever that it's actually about finding you know, really tapping into the reward-based learning system. I even, I even wrote a, a scientific paper about this, showing that the ancient Buddhist psychologist had described reward-based learning in a system that they called the seven factors of awakening, which sounds pretty important, and basically describing that if you bring awareness and interest or curiosity together, it's like rubbing two sticks together, you create this heat 
that then brings energy, that then brings joy, that then brings tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. All of these things come naturally from being aware and interested. So it's like, it's like reading a good book. You know, if you open up a good book and you're interested, it's not like you have to force yourself to read it. You know, you get, you suddenly, uh, you've probably done this. You, you start reading a good book and it's like, you're like, oh man, it's 10 o'clock. I should go to bed. Well, I'm just going to read another chapter. And then it's like four in the morning and you're like, whoa, I read the whole book. So it's like we get this energy that just comes out of nowhere. Well, really, it comes from being interested and aware. And then we suddenly become concentrated. And so the concentration comes not from trying to force ourselves to be concentrated, but bringing awareness together with curiosity. And so that's why I think of curiosity as a superpower, because it can really help us stay focused on even things as boring as the breath where I tried to force myself to pay attention to my breath when meditating. And I realized I could actually stay concentrated literally for hours at a time, one-pointed concentration, simply by being interested and curious. And so that was, that was revolutionary for me. And it was also beautiful to see the ancient Buddhist psychology come together with the modern-day science, you know, because, you know, oh, wow, you know, the Buddhists were describing operant conditioning. Oh, wow. And this fits with concentration. Oh, this fits with addictions. This fits with habit change. This fits with, you know, like everything just took off from there. Yeah. And we were talking about this earlier before we hit record, but like you love mountain biking and you also like did BMX racing. And I also was a musician growing up and I know that you were a quartet musician. So like mm-hmm. all of those things also bring in what you were just talking about and people listening like that's why we love the things that we love is because it does give that to you in your life. Yes, yes, absolutely. So we can actually savor those rewards, you know, for playing music or even just listening to music. We can notice what it feels like to be totally concentrated and just totally in a song as compared to trying to listen to music and do three other things at the same time, you know just it's it's a whole different ball game and that can teach us something about how our mind works and when we know how our mind works then we can start to work with our mind and we can start to put these things into play and we can become more concentrated we can become more joyful we can become more connected we can be we even learn that kindness feels better than being a jerk you know and then suddenly our life transforms because we're not as closed down and contracted all the time with trying to beat our colleagues at whatever. And we're more open because we're curious and we're connected and we're kind. And we're, and that stuff rubs off. So as people, you know, they're like, oh, she's nice. And then they're nice back to you, you know, and it just goes and, and it just spirals beautifully outward from there. I think that's a really great place to wrap it up. I love this conversation. And where can people find more things about you? Find your apps or your book, your TED Talk? I have a, <laughs> oh, yeah. So I have a website called drjud.com, D-R-J-U-D.com, that has, you know, I write um, articles and I put our scientific articles on there and our apps. The eating program is called Eat Right Now. The uh, anxiety program is called Unwinding Anxiety. And I think I mentioned the smoking program called Craving to Quit. Those apps, people can learn more information about each of those apps on the website as well. So that's probably a good place to find all of that. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show and for putting out such incredible work that 
is making a really, really big difference for a lot of people. No, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode with Dr. Judd Brewer. Make sure you visit him at drjudd.com and get all the things. Definitely pick up his book. I have both the audiobook and the paperback book because I loved it so much. Don't forget to hit subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Those mean the world to us. And helping other people find the show so that they can be better every day is a huge priority for us. Thanks again, you guys. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.